I'm here with uh, Chris Paget. Uh, you have a, a license in theology. You studied Mariology for that, I did. that degree and uh, written a number of books. And uh, so we're going to jump all over the place here today. Um, one thing I'd just like to start with something you just told me about was evangel. I think it seemed like the theme of, of your work is evangelization. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Your full time ministry. Yep. Nine kids. <laughs> I, I, it seems like a lot when you say it out loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, evangelization and uh, pre-evangelization are definitely our focus. I love the role of catechesis. Uh, I do that in the teaching roles I've had with Franciscan and Catholic Distance University, and that'll always be something I cherish. But I'm really interested in um, modeling uh, the, the life of Christ in the everyday kind of experiences that people are most familiar with, whether it's just interacting with one another at a kid's sporting event, having people come over for a grill out, or just spending time talking to somebody. I mean, ultimately, I'm wanting to figure out how do we, how do we reach a generation of people that are pretty disinclined to, to do business as usual by going to church and, and finding the answers there. Mm. And... The thing that got my attention too, you said that sometimes we think of evangelization as just like imparting knowledge. Right. But it's, this is a big deal for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I've noticed this over the, the course of, of years teaching and interacting with a lot of people who have a great love for the faith. But it's almost like this idea of the more that I learn about the faith, then I now will speak that knowledge to someone else. And I've done my job as evangelist, as someone imparting or or giving the, you know, the specifications of what I need to do for the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. And I think it's imperative that we learn and that we study so that we can know how to, how to communicate with people. But, but, but knowledge is not the same thing as evangelization. So, so here's an example. Let's pretend that you have a struggle. Maybe it's uh, you struggle with something like smoking cigarettes. It's not, it's not um, you know, the worst sin, but it's certainly not healthy. So I come to you and I say, you know, Father, it's not advisable for you to smoke, and here's the reasons why. Now, I've done my job. I, and part of the reason that people do this is that they're trying to clear their conscience so they're not held culpable for, you know, somehow being silent when they see a brother struggle, right? But the truth is, I don't know you that well, uh, and I'm not sure I've really earned that right to come in and play that role in your life. But, but I do it because there's a conviction in me that, that somehow necessitates that I say that. Sometimes God uses that in a very profound way, but I've often seen that many people are disenfranchised even more with that faith because it seems like someone who doesn't have a right is just weaseling in and trying to make moral, moral rules. I bring that up because um, when a person does not do what you say, there's frustration. And it's almost as if I've done my job and now it's kind of your own fault that you ended up with cancer because I did tell you this wasn't good. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of how I've seen many people approach evangelization. I can't believe you're, you know, here you're struggling with this moral sin. You're struggling with this uh, particular vice. So here's the truth. Here's what the church says. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of detach ourselves from that and, and pat ourselves on the back and say, I, I think I've done the job. But I've been really pressed by this because I feel that evangelization says, I love you even if you choose not to see things from my point of view. Like, I will love you even if you don't apply the knowledge and the wisdom that I'm imparting to you. 
And in addition, that imparting of knowledge, I'm finding more and more the necessity to earn that right of sharing um, with someone. Because if the ultimate goal is conversion, then I think we got to strategize a little bit more carefully. Yeah. And I, I know I, we've had families on the shows here and stuff. And I'm just forgetting there was one out in California by Thomas Aquinas. Um, but in there, and I would imagine, I bet your home is kind of like this, that they, they had a family and like college kids would come over and just plug in. Yeah. And because you lived in Steubenville for a number of years, yep, you probably, did. was that effective? I mean, I guess it would look different for a family, for a single person, you know, this evangelization that's boots on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is especially the case now where we live. We live in central New York at this time. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very traditionally liberal area in a lot of ways. And at the school that my kids have been a part of, which is a public high school, every variable of crazy and amazing is found in that small little mm -hmm. school. And the people who come to our property, many of them fall into great moral calamities. Um, but you, for, you have like a farm? Out yeah, there? we have like about 80 acres in 80 central acres. New York. And so when people come to our property, um, there is a sense of we're welcome here. And I think that's a big part of our witness is that first, uh, we love you. We want you to feel accepted here. People come to the property. We hang out. We fellowship. And we don't really have to say a lot because everywhere you go in my house, there's a religious paraphernalia, statues, mm -hmm. you know, rosaries of plenty. You talk, uh, you know, about, um, you know, even divine mercy pictures. It's it's everywhere. So mm -hmm. there's no question about about where we stand on things. But when a person who's struggling with any type of addiction or relational struggles, they come to the house and they find that they're loved, um, even if they don't fit into our our particular box. It's pretty fascinating to see how that relationship can can grow and how you can begin to have conversations about things that really matter over a period of time. So, yeah, yeah I mean, our hopefully, I'm hoping our life is a witness to yeah. to something more than just we love ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I mean it's clearly a gift you have to be engaging and conversational, put people at ease. As well. I imagine, God uses that. But I would imagine, too, like with family members, maybe extended family, you probably had some frustrations, people you didn't have success with, right? And, oh, sure, sure. Yeah. It's hard sometimes when when um, you do an event, and uh, I bet that's a similar feeling at, at um, EWTN when you guys do a show and you mm -hmm. get some email that says, I hated the show. Yeah. Well, when I look at an audience, my desire is I want every single person in that audience to have a conversion, you know, to have yeah. an encounter with Christ, to truly make that decision. I want to live for God even more than I have ever mm -hmm. before. But I'm not going to reach everyone. And that irritates me. And I, I pray by the grace yeah. of God that we I can reach as many as possible. Yeah. And um, in my ministry, I've been doing this for 25 years. There's been a couple of times where I realized that it's it's possible. I said the wrong thing. I didn't I didn't say the thing I needed to say. Um, I, I was like shots fired, but but I'm missing the mark. Um, and over the years, I think when you do ministry, you you recognize that God gives us gift, gifts and talents not so we can be independent of Him, but ultimately so that we can be a, a vessel and a light for Him. But but the necessity to continue to lean deeply upon Him. Uh, when it comes to ministry is just regularly known um, because the more you do ministry, the more you know that you are incapable of doing what you've confidently believed God's called you to. 
Yeah. So someone listen to this. If you were to give them a step-by-step -step for evangelization, would like the first step would be like, be friends with the person. Yes. Pay attention to them. Isn't listen that insane? <laughs> like, start by by acknowledging they're a human being. Like, look at them, listen to them, find something to be interested in with them. Yeah. You don't have to love everything about them. Maybe yeah. they come and they got tattoos all over themselves. Never trust someone with a tattoo. Said someone who has tattoos. <laughs> the truth is, is that you could look at them and at first glance you could say, "Oh my gosh, all these reasons why we probably won't have anything in common." But it would be amazing if you just take a few minutes and just started asking some questions. And um, I have found I can usually find something that I would have in common with anyone if I actually care enough to ask. And I think that's the tell. Uh, are we interested in that person enough? And, um, and there's always gonna be a time and a place. There's a, um, there's a time and a place to have those kind of conversations. And it might be something as simple as, Oh my gosh, that's cool. You, I see you're wearing a concert shirt. I've been to that concert before. I wanted to go. That's pretty awesome. I, yeah. I like that kind of music. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden now you have an opportunity to converse with someone. But I feel like there's another propensity, which is to say, just because I mentioned that concert shirt does not mean I have to close the deal in that mm. same moment. Right. So, so it's a long-term relationship, I think, yeah. which is the key. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find I've had great conversations on planes and a lot of times, yeah, everybody I find most people like they enjoy talking about themselves or their work. And you just like ask a few questions and you can yeah. get them going on all kinds of. Absolutely. I recently like I had this conversation with this young woman that loves Star Wars and uh, I'm not a huge, I mean, I like the original, the first three or whatever. And you're dressed as a Jawa <laughs> and a Jedi Knight. I mean, come on. I think that did connect us a little bit with that. But we had the funnest conversation. And uh, so anyway, you know, I, I saw this article the other day, too. It was just talking about the, the power of eye contact, how to. Hmm. I tend to like look off and think, yeah. you know, when I'm talking to Me people. Too. But just like to stare somebody in the eye. Yeah. There's some kind of connection that not in a strange way, but, you know, just. It, it just goes so far to, yeah. you know, connect with a person and, uh, and we forget that. I used to have a band director that would say, you, you listen with your eyes, oh, which really? is such a fascinating, but I think w what he wanted us to do was to really pay attention to what it was that he was trying to, to say. And it wasn't yeah. just an audio experience There's something yeah. about taking it in visually mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the thing about this that's so fascinating to me is that I am actually an introvert, but my ministry necessitates that I'm extroverted. You would never guess. Never. That. And nobody <laughs> would ever guess. But I go into almost a coma after I'm done <laughs> with any ministry events because I put everything into that moment. And so it's like all in. And when I'm done, I'm so exhausted. I have to almost go into a a little quiet place just to regroup. So I love getting on a plane after an event because I can just go into like headphones and try to regroup and get my yeah. head on straight. But for me, it takes a lot to get out of my comfort shell and engage in a stranger's life. So four years I've been living in central New York. My kids have been going to the school four years. And um, there are people I see, I've seen them for four years, but I haven't actually fully communicated with yet. Right. They know who I am and I kind of know who they are because of uh. just familiarity. But 
But all of a sudden this year, I started engaging in a conversation with a lady because we were going to buy a couple goats from them, which is hilarious. So we bought two goats. And because of this now, we've become pretty good friends. Now she knows that we're a ministry family. She's interested in that because while she's not Catholic, she is interested in faith. And so she's going to try to come to some of the events that we do at our house, which is the opportunity that I have to talk a little bit more about why I love being Catholic. And as a convert, I love being Catholic. Mm -hmm. So there's no way that I would have approached this person and said, you know, I love being Catholic. You should be Catholic. And now I've told you what you need to know. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and then that's it. I mean, some relationships are kind of long in the building and the growing. Yeah. Some moments are instantaneous. You're sitting next to somebody in a plane, and that moment is a miracle moment. Yeah, yeah. So. Let me ask you about ministry, too, that um, I remember I was told by a European, I forgot who it was, but they were telling me that they, they look towards America because they have all these great ministries and things going on, and like a real sign of hope, of like a vibrant Catholicism. And I, I've wondered since... When he said that, I have wondered about, you know, maybe that is a charism of American Catholicism. I don't know if it's simply that maybe we have more wealth, we can support ministries, and people sometimes can do both and. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think that's kind of an American gift? Because there are so many apostolates, you know, sure. stuff going on. There are. Now more than ever, I think um, it's certainly growing, which is a positive. But he here's what I think about it is that um, whether it has very little to do with money. I think ultimately what it comes down to is thinking a little bit outside of the box, seeing a need and then choosing to move forward on that need. So uh, the last two years I've done some work in the Philippines. And interestingly enough, just the age demographic alone is insane. Like they're so predominantly young. And so you have this vibrancy in this youth. And this particular minister I know who's a great evangelist, and he basically was getting some complaints from older people like, why are we catering to the younger people and why are we doing this? And, and basically what he said is, if you want our church to die, we can keep doing things the same way we've been doing it. But if you would like to grow, then we have to look around and recognize that most of the people are between 16 and 23. So what are we going to do? So this ministry over there empowers young people to step forth with their gifts and talents. So, so what they've seen is, here's our need. So they teach them how to be financially stable, which is a huge thing in the Philippines. And they teach them how to be ministers. They teach them how to be good leaders. And then they basically set them up for success. And this ministry, I did this event two years in a row now, where they'll have 10,000 people gather, take a break, mass, and then another like to eight to 10,000 people will show up. Like a different group? Yeah, wow. yeah. So what happens is, is that they have these like little pockets where they built communities all over. Huh. And then they'll do these gatherings. Now that's kind of the secret with um, mega churches. Mm -hmm. Many times they will base it on small group dynamics. And I think if anything we can learn from all of this is simply this. Whether you live in Europe or whether you live in America, people want community. They want to belong. They want something where they know they're not by themselves and completely isolated. So, um, and the truth is, part of the difficulty is it takes a lot for some people to share vulnerability. Vulnerably, here's my brokenness. Can I be, could I be accepted if I shared this part of my life? 
And if we could master that, then then we would be bursting at the seams. Yeah, we've got a thriving mega church like a, a mile from here, and uh, they have satellite campuses all over the state. They do mission work, prison ministry, and and he said that in an interview. The pastor said it's the life of it's just based on small groups that yeah. people find a community there. And yeah, they, people want to know that they're loved, that they're not yeah. alone, that they have a place to go. Right. And, and sometimes it's even stronger than their family ties. Hmm. That's become their family. Yeah. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit and talk about doing ministry and being creative and energetic. Uh, you've written on the Holy Spirit, and is there something that people can do practically to to have the Holy Spirit direct their life more? And Well, uh, yeah, I mean, simply just to have a conversation with the Holy Spirit is a great way to start. Yeah. You know, I welcome you today. Uh, I'd love to move and, and not quench you. That'd be mm. a simple, right? Don't quench yeah. the Holy Spirit. Um, give Him freedom. What does that look like, though? And I think it's interesting. I did a little examination of the Acts of the Apostles, and I just wanted to see how did the Holy Spirit move in the early church. And what I found is that the great passion was for them to share the gospel. That's what they wanted to do. They were empowered by the Spirit of God to go out and preach that gospel. Great commission coming to fruition. But the problem was there were a million obstacles, languages, barriers, there's storms, there's physical difficulties and obstacles, there's internal struggles, there's religious conflicts and supernatural you know, obstacles with the attacks of the enemy. I mean, you name it. There's no reason it should have worked. But what I love about it is that there's such a, a personal um, encounter and empowerment by the Spirit of God that enables them to preach the gospel in the languages of those who are listening to to get up after they've been stoned and left for dead and then go and preach the gospel again. I mean, that's amazing to me. You know, like I got a sore finger from something I did the other day working out. Or, and I, I don't know, man. I mean, this is all I'm thinking about, right? Oh, my gosh. But Paul is stoned and left for dead. And he gets yeah. up and he preaches. Like, it just kind of blows my mind. Yeah. And I think sometimes that the secret maybe for all of us, um, you know, in the pew and, and up on the, on the altar is that, is that the Holy Spirit is not a condiment to our spirituality. Yeah. Right? It is necessary that we, that we work and have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And this is not about any type of specific charismatic um, expression. This is just a basic Christian fact that Jesus Christ gave us his very spirit and the very spirit that worked in the apostles and enabled them to preach the gospel amidst great obstacles is the very same spirit in us. And so there's literally nothing that can get in the way yeah. of us doing great things right. except ourself, ultimately. Right. Right. Yeah, uh, Renero, Father Renero Cantal Mesa came to Birmingham a number of years ago. He, he gave a talk at a a local Protestant college, and uh, and his his theme was going to be on preaching, and I was like, oh my gosh, I got to be there. I want to hear that because he's just so yeah, incredible preacher. <laughs> and he, he just opens up the talk. He said, if you want to be, I forgot how he said, but if you want to be like a great preacher, he said you have to do what the apostles did, and he said receive the Holy Spirit. You have mm -hmm. to have what happened to them. 
And that was like, I was expecting some you know, pointers, <laughs> but he said, you know, yeah. it's the Holy Spirit that, uh, you know, that gifts a person and everything Amen. makes it effective. And the... Sober intoxication of the spirit, right? Isn't that his, yeah. one of his classics? Yeah. I think he's a charismatic and had yeah. a conversion experience through that. So He's got a pretty good resume. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> And let me ask you too, in, in, in ministry, following the Holy Spirit, it's not a cakewalk. You know, you got a big family, you have a marriage, you have to bend finances, and you've written about that. Um, what would you, what kind of advice would you give to a, maybe a couple starting out on this journey? Um, I think what's very important, really, whether you're working as a, as a nurse, a lawyer, doctor, whatever, um, or wanting to go into ministry, that um, there has to be a heart, I think, a unity between the couple that says um, we're all in when it comes to to what we're doing here as a, as a family because you will I think you will encounter some great difficulties um, uh, struggles in marriage and family life they're not they're not easy to talk about even once you've made it through on the other side it, there's a lot of pain and a lot of wounds that people carry from those and um, the question ultimately is, is, is what, do, what do we do with that? How do we process that? How do we live knowing that some of that's going to be so hard? And the Spirit of God gives us what we need in order to be great witnesses even to our families. But uh, one of the things that we like to say to, to couples is you can't outgive God. So our first primary principle is to just be radically generous when it comes to your time and your talent. I mean, God has given you gifts and talents to you. So... Don't bury him. So here's the, um, you know, the story of the parable, um, excuse me, the parable of the um, the talents, right? Okay, I, here's my two-second take on this. I love this story because I used to didn't, I used to not like it because I was always felt a little bit bad for the guy who had the one and he, he just was trying to safeguard it by burying it, okay? And that guy unhinges on him, basically. It does not end well, right? But I, I realized something the older I got that was so powerful is that we don't know the time frame between when the master distributes to each according to their abilities, by the way. We don't know how long he's gone. All we know is that he saw their abilities, knew what they could do, gave them the amount of money uh, that they would need in order to be successful. He set them up for success. That's the thing that's so amazing. It could be he was gone a week, a month, a year, two years, five years. We don't know. We're always under the impression that immediately they go out and they double their money, which is the big deal there. They double their money. That's the big thing. But it's possible that they tried and failed numerous times. But when the master returns, they're able to give this exceedingly abundant above and beyond what they'd originally received. And the reason that guy is such an epic failure is that he, it was all gift in the first place. And so our phrase is, you're free to fail. And this I love. Because if a couple and even a family can recognize there are going to be difficulties and moments, and it's okay if you realize, wait a minute, we're on the wrong track. Let's turn around. You are free to turn around. It's okay. You, you like, And the reality of that story that applies to me is that all is gift. They did nothing to deserve what they had received. So what do you think would have happened if that one would have gone out and invested and lost it? He tried. He tried hard, but lost it. And he came back and he had less than what he had received, a half a talent or possibly nothing. 
And he said, I went out, I did what you asked, I tried, I invested, and I'm so sorry. I'll work as long as I need to to make amends, but I, 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 here's the half a talent or here's nothing. I think that would have been far better received, more received than him bearing it, because yeah. the truth is, is that he didn't even give the possibility of, of being blessed. It was not even allowed. And I feel like that's kind of the missing link when it comes to a lot of families. Like they get into the habit of just going through the motions. And I think there's room to explore what it could look like for them to do ministry and to share the faith and to live the faith and model the faith. And if we're just living nine to five and just trying to pay the bills only, then we're going to get lost in that momentum and it's going to feel like impossible. But the Holy Spirit in us allows us to do something really unique and different. And um, what we're doing in central New York is something anyone can do anywhere, which is literally, we have a soup night every fall where people in all of the area bring soup to our house and we all just fellowship and get to know the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be Catholic, Christian. You could be atheist, you could be new age, whatever, come have soup. Mm. And and that's what we do. Yeah. And I love that because, um, you just have to make soup and have a table. And that's all that's needed. If you think outside of the box, I'm confident, God, you're free to fail. You might yeah. find that that soup night stinks and nobody wants to come. Then yeah. do something different. Do a volleyball night. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I remember I was at a Steubenville conference. You were hosting. We were televised. We were taping stuff there. And uh, if I remember right, you were, you were the MC, and you came out and you... You told me later you'd bought this shirt like from Walmart. It had like this tiger on it. <laughs> Do you remember that? That you, is like the most famous shirt I've ever worn. Is it? Yes, <laughs> that tiger shirt has gotten some play. Well, I remember that because they played Eye of the Tiger, I think, when you came out. And you just like were doing kind of like so this insane. craziest. It wasn't like this high speed thing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you just did some kind of pose. And the young, the kids just went crazy. And I thought... Was there some inside joke? I don't no. get <laughs> They're just trying to understand how a fat man can can wear that shirt and get away with it. But yeah, for me to know that you're so an introvert yeah. and you did that, I mean, that's that's trusting Jesus, right? That's going out <laughs> on the branch. That's yeah. willing to try new things. Yeah. And, uh, I I think when, it, it, um, when I realized that the way I, I um, feel after I do ministry was the big tell for me that, that um, like I have friends that are extroverts. They're like, they're ready to go. They get off the stage. They're like, let's go out and <laughs> hang out and talk and party and whatever. And I'm like, I just, I think I'm going to go back to my hotel room. And to, and to be honest, my idea of a great day is spending all day like in my room and working and like reading a book. And um, so, so yeah, getting on that stage is a big act of, uh, it's a big yes is what it is. It's a big yes to, to, and I know that God made me a little bit weird. And I, I'm, that's not a surprise to me, and it's not a surprise to him. But it seems to resonate with, with young people. Yeah. And um, so getting on that stage hopefully is just a little bit of a witness that God, God does not have a cookie-cutter stamp on what it looks like yeah. to serve him. In your own story, would you... Born and raised Catholic, you had a big conversion experience? We came into the church Easter of 1999. I grew up uh, in Protestant churches for my childhood. My dad was not a faith-based person. He was agnostic. So when I spent time with him, there was no religion, no, no prayer, no family, um, going to church kind of thing. My mom, uh, I think she was really trying to settle in to a life after the divorce. 
that included faith. So we went to a Baptist church for a long time, and then the you and your of wife, God, you mean, or? Uh, my mom and my sister and I. But oh, when okay. I got older, uh, that we continued kind of going to Baptist churches, Assembly God churches, and non-denominational things. Went to a Baptist college for a little while, and then um, that conversion story was pretty radical for me. I I ended up just exploring some things. Uh, by authors like Henry Nowen and a friend was reading Chesterton and Merton. And, and the next thing you know, I'm asking other questions about, about why we do what we do. I've shared a couple of times on Journey Home a little bit of my conversion story, but it ultimately, it was so transformative that when I entered the Catholic Church, my mother said, Chris, you becoming Catholic is the most hurtful thing you've ever done to me. Mm-hmm. But it was so difficult for her to process but my wife and I, we've been Catholic now for over 20 years, and um, it, it literally is probably the greatest choice we've ever made as a couple. It's so transformative and puts things into perspective, and it's empowering. And I can't, you know, it's funny with all the stuff that's been going on in the church and people just looking for an excuse to leave. I look at people and I think to myself, man, I did not become Catholic because of a priest or a bishop or a pope for that matter. I became Catholic because of Jesus Christ. And there is no way I'm going anywhere. I mean, I am in it for the long haul. And I am I love being Catholic. Yeah. love it. Yeah, I was just reading, um, I love John chapter 6, you know, verse 52 on the heart of it. And I was just reading today just... You know, if you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you know, some, like I'll abide in you and he'll abide in me. You know, whoever does this will abide in me and I'll in him. And I I thought, you know, just that, that gift of the Eucharist in the Catholic Church, that we can have this communion, this strength of Jesus. Yeah. You know, if, if, you, if you need strength in life, you know, if life's kind of hard, you know, we have the Eucharist to receive Jesus Christ, yeah. to receive His Spirit, to strengthen us. Yes. Where else can you go for I that? love that. Yeah. I've been thinking about the Eucharist for obviously quite a while, ever since I became Catholic. And I said something the other day that I've believed for a while, but I, I just found that it resonated with this group that I was speaking with, which was when we when we go to adoration or, or to Mass, not only, I mean, are all our favorite saints there, but the loved ones that we've prayed for who are in the presence of Jesus, our family, those that we miss, they're there as well. It, it's such a communion. It's such yeah. a literally a moment of, I mean, um, the veil of time and eternity is really kind of like meshing in a very unique way. And um, I love that intimacy with, with the body of Christ that their whole entire desire is for our sanctification and and uh, culmination of being formed in the image and likeness of Christ. I I love that, and there's nothing else that can do that. It's it's Jesus. Yeah, he's the one who brings us together like that. Yeah. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about. I mean, so many people have the experience of coming from a divorced home, and what our Catholic faith, how that can maybe help. Maybe some of the hurt, wounds mm. from that experience. Have you found certain things especially helpful or devotion to Mary? Or? Sure. Well, I would say this on a very practical level, one of the greatest ways for healing to happen uh, if you come from a bro- broken home is to um, A, you know, pray for your family and B, to really do your best to try to, to initiate a relationship 
even with with them when you um, when you're struggling to do so. Not talking about abusive scenarios and things of that nature, but that's a different conversation. Here's here's a simple example. Uh, my father left my mother when I was when I was uh, a young boy, and uh, they got divorced when I was four, basically four or five, and. Um, it was very difficult for me. I wanted my parents together. Like I knew that they were supposed to be together and they just could not figure it out. And it really messed with my understanding of what it meant to, to be a man, what it looked like to be a dad uh, day in and day out. I had no idea. What, did it, what does it look like to be a husband that's in it for the long haul with your wife? What, what does that look like? There's no model and example for me. And I, I think I felt frustrated, especially when I got older and I wanted to get married. I, I knew I loved Linda. I just didn't know what it looked like to do this. So what was interesting to me is that I realized I could be angry with my dad if I wanted for the rest of my life, but I did not want that. And so I tried to find something that I had in common with him that wouldn't enter into an argument. And I realized we could talk about art because he he's an artist. And so he was always fascinated with me because I lived off my art. So that bridge, we are so close today. I mean, it's been, you know, decades of working hard at making that relationship work. And um, both of us, and he and I both, I remember once we were sitting at a Chinese restaurant in the middle of Minnesota somewhere, and my dad said something about the divorce. And I looked at him and I said, you know, it, it was a bummer that you weren't there for me as a kid. But I said, I want to spend the rest of my life getting to know you. Yeah. And I think that's one of the greatest healing moments. And that that heart for for reunion and union comes from Christ. Yeah. And um, I think I think ultimately the Catholic faith is constantly trying to foster and nurture within us a desire for forgiveness. Specifically, forgive us our trespasses as mm -hmm. we forgive those who trespass against us. Yeah. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean we forget or pretend something that was bad is now good. That's not it at all. But forgiveness right. provides an opportunity to let go of the things that are weighing us down and to see yeah. maybe things differently. And did you say you, you were into art yourself? Well, my music was, you know, my artistic expression oh, okay. or... Um, did you study that in college, music? No, I ended up getting a college scholarship for doing some music, but I, I disregarded it because I didn't want to like do... I didn't want to be a band director. Uh, yeah. uh, I, but I ended up... Cause I started writing a lot of music uh, on the piano and I, and I ended up... Um, starting a band and then the band got successful and we ended up having a couple national releases and kind of went that route. So we had some touring and some notoriety, but, um, and we lived that way for a long time. Um, so I had a lot of musical kind of background and experience and that was kind of what and how I made a living mm -hmm. was just traveling and doing conferences and concerts and Things like and that. And the kind of music you did would would be Christian music. Yeah, 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 music? yeah. Scarecrow and Tinman. We we did a show with Jeff Cavins back in the old day on Life on the Rock. Oh, did you? Yes, we did. So there's an old Life on the Rock episode with us, huh. and uh, we cleaned up pretty good for that episode. <laughs> this was in the old days with the Deacon, and uh -huh. uh, so we we um, I think they played our ballad off of the CD, yeah. and um, but we didn't play live for. Yeah obvious reasons back then. <laughs> but the truth is, is that um, music was a big deal. And my father, uh, as an artist, 
um, was fascinated, I think, with my life. Yeah. Because I did something that he always kind of wanted to do, which was to basically only live off of his art. He ended up becoming the chair of the art department for a major university, and he did very well. But mm -hmm. it, I think in his mind, as an artist, the idea of living on your art was the great appeal. And I, yeah. I was doing that. Yeah. We could talk about that and not have any problems. Right. And that was pretty fascinating, really. Yeah. And to this day, I, I love I love his, his art. I love talking about it with him and seeing uh, the various ways it's progressed over the years but what is uh, I mean, fatherhood takes a beating today in our popular culture and <laughs> and i i would love to kind of awaken in men like that sense of purpose even if they're not married or have kids but just the spiritual fatherhood i'd like to get your thoughts on that too just that because i i've experienced it myself there's a you know, there's a special presence, you know, because it struck me. You said you'd like to spend the rest of your life getting to know your dad. And I, yeah. I, my father's passed away, but I have like mentors in my life that are older and I just get something from them yes. that I don't get from women. And, yeah. and how, how do you describe that? What you get? <laughs> well, that's a, yeah, that's great. Um, the struggle that we have right now is that we have we have sexualized everything about relationships so that if you have a very beautiful friendship, it's somehow automatically in people's mind necessarily meant to culminate in some physical intimacy, which robs friendship of its powerful beauty. Yeah. And what I love about, about being together with fellow men and just sharing my heart and praying for each other and just being there is that it's a relatable platform. So my struggles are 99% of the time, their struggles. And especially the older you get, the more you realize how much you need Jesus. Uh, I just find that um, even the, the propensity to shy away from vulnerability uh, or this kind of almost macho attempt at pretending you're not afraid and you got it all figured out. Like if you can get past all of that and you can have an honest, real conversation, yeah. it's invaluable. Yeah. And there have been there. And what I found the secret to that is you have to be willing to be vulnerable. And there are two things that happen when you're vulnerable. One is people will judge you. Uh, the other is that um, it opens up the door for someone else to be vulnerable. Yeah. So what's amazing about a man and, and a man sharing is that if they can be vulnerable in that struggle, then all of a sudden new doors open up in their life on ways to look at struggles and issues. And I think that we've kind of, um, it, it's almost like, uh, think of going out into battle and we've tried to put on our armor by ourselves, uh, but there's some parts of that that can't be tied down properly without someone helping you secure it. And that's what I think the beauty of brotherly fellowship can allow. Like, I know you're going into battle. You're going to need this. Let's change that weapon. You know, here's what you're struggling with. Yeah. I've, I've been there. This is the hill you're going to encounter. I want to help you. Now, in marriage, you're meant to do that for each other in a very powerful, intimate way. So the collaborative relationship between men and men is a little bit different within the marital context, but that's another conversation. But I, I feel that many men miss out on this kind of relationship out of fear. Uh -huh. I think they're afraid to get close to other men mm -hmm. because either A, they're afraid that somehow that necessarily will mean that there's something awkward about it, or B, they've never had an example of what that kind of friendship could look like. 
But I still, to this day, I cherish those childhood friendships I had with my best friends, those guys. We were inseparable. Mm -hmm. And those moments were like changed me in a lot of ways. Like we yeah. need each other. Yeah. Do you have like some women friends that help you out or just not as much or? Well, uh, part of this goes back to my introvert kind of character. I personally, <laughs> I'm like, I just, I'd rather just hang out with my wife. So honestly, <laughs> we just, um, we're just pretty good with that. Yeah. Couples, sometimes we'll have some couples that we'll interact with. Um, but I don't, social media allows you a platform to have some dialogue and friendships with yeah. other people. But yeah. but the truth is, is that I don't, it, it's a little harder for, I think I would be um, hesitant to encourage and foster deep relationships with the opposite sex outside of, you know, a clear boundary. Right. Uh, there's too many obvious reasons why, yeah, but, yeah. but the truth um, is that I find if you are willing, you can learn from anyone, whether they're young or old, male or female. And I think God brings people in your life to help you grow. So there are certain women who've come into my life outside of my sister and my mother um, who are usually connected to a guy that they're married to that is part of our circle. Yeah. And maybe the, the women in that relationship minister to me because what they're saying really resonates, yeah. but... Um, There's gotta be a real healthy context. Yeah, 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 and that's that's a whole nother yeah. kind of conversation, yeah. but um, the enemy, man, he is tricky. <laughs> and, and he does everything he can to rob relationships of their beauty. Yeah. And that is, that's the name of my, I mean, that's the reality of what we do in ministry is we work with marriages and families and, and uh, re relationships are, they're in crisis out there right now, and the enemy is playing dirty. So yeah, yeah. Let me ask you about co-redemptrix. I know your license yep. was Mariology. You studied the Carol. Yep. Father Juniper, Juniper Carroll. Carol. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I find this topic so. I mean, I, of course, I believe it and everything. It's just. I dread preaching on it because it's just so complicated. I mean, to, I joked with a group here one time talking about Mary. I said it's like it makes sense that Mariology is complicated. Women are complicated, right? That's, that's <laughs> and I think there's some yeah. truth to this that it's like because you have you know, it brings in the understanding of grace and cooperation and sanctification and right and it's like you know participation in this and. How do you understand it? Like, you just explain that term to people. Well, if I'm going to communicate this to a group of people, let's say it's at a parish, it literally is remedial. We're back to square one. They're trying to figure out if the Immaculate Conception is Jesus's birth or not. Right. So, right. so we're not, right. I'm usually not leading with co-redemption. <laughs> but when I do, let's say I'm doing a, um, sometimes for a mission in the morning, I'll do these little Bible studies and I'll talk about the four dogmas that the church has mm -hmm. for Mary. So we'll run through the four. And then someone might ask about co-redemption. After I've laid the foundation of what the church speaks about when it comes to, uh, you know, Mother of God, Ever Virgin, Immaculate Conception, and Assumption, it's a little bit easier than to jump into co-redemption. Here's the truth. As a convert, co-redemption, 
I just at that point you could you could say co-redemption. I think uh, of course Catholics would be for something like that because you guys are already insane when it comes to the Immaculate Conception, <laughs> right? You're already disregarding Romans for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So why wouldn't you call her co-redemptrix? <laughs> but but after you realize that the church has meaning behind the madness, right? Um, co-redemption is such a beautiful teaching. Uh, it's it's actually. Uh, all there in Vatican II's Lumen Gentium chapter 8. Like the definition is truly there. Chapter 8 is the whole chapter on Mary. Redemptive suffering and the role of Our Lady at the cross, that maternal heart, that whole teaching is there. It's not spoken. It's not used. The word co-redemption is not used there. But the teaching is is even, you could say, explicitly there. Now, the word uh, advocate is used there, and so is mediatrix, but um, but not co-redemption. So here's the thing is that co-redemption, the word is a trigger for many people that's a problem. They don't like the word because they feel like it means it's it's an equality with Jesus. And so if you know the problem, then you can speak to the problem. But right. the word has nothing to do with equality. Yeah. So you see, it, what it comes down to ultimately is that a Protestant mentality looks at co-redemption and they have a problem because mediation for them is exclusive. It's exclusively Jesus, the one mediator between heaven and earth. But within the Catholic context, we recognize that the mediation and specifically right co-redemption, it's it's inclusive. So so because you you have Jesus as the one mediator, we are all now invited into that ability to to be mediators, co-mediators if you are right co-heirs with Christ and co-laborers yeah. with Christ. So when I talk about co-redemption, I usually will acknowledge, if you have a problem with a word, I'm not fighting for that word today. Uh, but the teaching you can't argue with. And ultimately, that Mary participated in that objective uh, redemptive act, yeah. but it's subordinate to yeah. that the, the role of Christ. So with yeah. and under is the phrasing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, look, I, honestly, I pick my battles when it comes to certain things like yeah. those. And I have good friends of mine who teach on this and they, they, they would want to adamantly fight for the word right from the get go. And I'm, I can understand all that rationale and, I, yeah. and I'm not opposed to that. Mm-hmm. But, but I know it took me a while to get to that point of understanding that word. And I know some of the steps it took for me to make that more um, a, possible. So I'm trying to deal with some of the steps that might be, they might be struggling with along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I I was struck by something John Paul said about, you know, she participated in these events, these mysteries of Christ's life in the actual events. You know, she is there at the foot of the cross. Yeah. Immaculately conceived. And so she has a special participation that's unique to her. One, just you know, physically giving birth and then offering up that maternal rights, you know, with, on the Calvary and consenting, you know, and that immolation. Yeah. And um, so I, I try to come back to that too. And, um, you know, I was talking, I was at a conference one time with Dr. Mark Mervalli and he, he said something that struck me. And I, I really latched onto this that he said, you know, because we've talked about like a fifth Marian dogma. Yep. Talk about co-redemptrix, mediatorial graces, and advocate, and um, and he he made the point that all that was taken up into Mary, Mother of the Church. He gave a talk on it actually, and uh, and that just really rang true to me. I said, yeah, it doesn't quite sound right to say those very 
theologically technical terms to make a new dogma, you know. But I, I like that idea because under motherhood, suffering with the child. I mean, right. natural mothers know that. Right. Feeding the child, mediatrix law graces, advocating, praying, or caring for them. And I, uh, it just hit me a few years ago preaching on John 19, you know, Jesus giving us Mary to be our mother from the cross, that to me, my personal opinion, just that it, it just seems worthy of a dogma to explain that event. You know, and it kind of yeah. like a culmination of, you know, what is this to us? Her Immaculate Conception, Virginia. Yeah, it brings us yeah. Christ. And then and this is like describing or whatever, articulating her relationship to us. And it's like, I mean, this, this passage is so huge, hanging from the cross. I know. I mean, it just seemed like, um, it just seems fitting to have another dogma for that. <laughs> but, well, and that word fitting is the, uh, is the appropriate, I think that's the appropriate word because when you look at uh, all the types and all of the, the Old Testament kind of um, imagery, it culminates into the fulfillment with Mary. And yeah. you see that with Eve, right? The, mm -hmm. the new Eve. Um, Our Lady and um, the, the tabernacle, right? You have Mary as the Ark of the Covenant. Um, like you can see these connection yeah. points. Right. And so when we talk about um, right co-redemption and mediation and advocacy, I think it, it culminates and it's fitting because it's really the, the fruit of all that we've been exploring and, and playing with. But but um, I, oftentimes, I, you know, I think you can easily say to someone, you have to really explain the Immaculate Conception to, to someone who's trying to understand Catholic theology anyway. Right. So w that's part of what we do is we explain why we're using these terms. So including co-redemption is not going to be the end, end of the world. When, it, when it's all said and done, uh, God knows how it'll, how it'll happen. But, but I think it helps people to understand suffering to look at it through Our Lady's eyes. Yeah. Like, I think there's something about her connectedness to Christ. As a family, sometimes we'll pray the seven sorrows of Mary. And even my children seem to hone in on that. There's something about a mother connecting to her son and that struggle and that sorrow that seems to to just resonate with us. And yeah. I don't know. I think, yeah, it's such a common experience. Even we're not mothers, but we've seen our mother Yes. suffer for her kids you know maybe just like the kids are adult they're worried about them praying for them you know it's just such a common experience that we have and that you know just to be rem i i think it's powerful too just to be reminded of like true discipleship uh, sometimes we can think the essence of it is like this american success yeah and i'm looking good and it's going well and i'm you know yeah. we just have mary at the foot of the cross seeing her son crucified naked. I mean, yeah. that's not success in any stretch. Right. You know? right. So we all hit this, that devastation in our life in some way. It's like, that's a great source of encouragement. She said she's the model disciple. Yeah. Amen. You know, she's at the garbage dump where her son is crucified. You know? Well, and what's interesting is that she unites all of that ache and Christ, right, with that inclusiveness he didn't have to, but he chooses to. He he wills to take that and unites it to that salvific act. I mean, that's yeah. mind blowing. It's really a model and a witness and the hope for us to know that I can unite now my brokenness, my weakness, my aches, my sufferings, my sorrow to Christ and know that he will use that yeah. for the benefit of another. Yeah. 
And I, I, love, I love that part of our faith because as a convert, this really resonated with me because in the Protestant arena, there wasn't any way to deal with that kind of suffering and struggle, at least in the churches that we went to. There's no yeah. redemptive suffering, and you could name it and claim it, but you still ended up coughing. Right. You know, you, right. Claim it, you still got your glasses on. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I just, yeah, I, I mean, I love that topic of, of co-redemption, but um, uh, I probably sn- sneak it in more on the idea of, uh, of the sorrowful mother and the teachings that we have on, on her there, the seven sorrows of Mary, and then we can introduce some of that language um, as, as they begin to resonate with the teaching. So, and I do think that the word does bespeak the teaching, which is what Dr. Miravalli mm-hmm. is going to really articulate. And I love, he's one of the greatest teachers I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. I mean, for real, his, he is an unbelievably exceptional teacher, right. like his gift. Right. And so um, I would never even remotely come close to articulating it yeah. like he does yeah. as well. But, but um, yeah. And, you know, one of our priests pointed out in a homily I was listening to him, he talked about Mary at the foot of the cross, and he said, he just simply said it casually, but <laughs> he said, you know, Mary's at the foot of the cross, and she, and she, she didn't run. She stood in faith, yeah. and she's not going to run from our cross. Mm. You know, she's not going to. There's a, some line, I forgot if it's Bonaventure or something, he said, but, you know, we could be the most despised sinners in the world. You know, but Mary won't abandon us. Yeah. And she chases us down to bring us back into communion with the church. And, and the, you know, because the, I mean, the cross and personal struggles can get really ugly, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and you think, and I think that's kind of the feminine motherly gift is just like, man, they're focused on their kids and it doesn't, they'll be with you. They're going to ride there in for the long haul. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, I wanted to ask you one more. Oh, yeah. Um, this uh, with with Mary and what do you think? And like, there's a big push on feminism, the feminist movement, and everything. And it's not like we're just struggling always uh, with role, vocation of women. And what do you see that like Mary could teach the modern? When you have a number of daughters, and what do you hope they would get from Mary, or what does Mary have to teach us about? I mean, obviously, she's the greatest disciple. Her entire life was a gift to Jesus. So I hope whatever vocation any of my girls go into, I want them to to be all in when it comes to Christ. So I think that's the first. I love that. I think Mary was a very strong, strong woman. I think sometimes we get maybe lost and she's meek and mild. And she certainly has that meekness and uh, the beautiful, quiet, contemplative part. But she... I remember reading somebody said she must have had something of Joan of Arc in her. And <laughs> I love that. I think that's so true. I mean, for her to stand at the foot of the cross. Yeah. I mean, that's a powerful woman. Yeah. There's there's something then but not just that, but to to stand with the early church, to be there in that moment, to to be a witness as she shares, you know, the story in in and we have the infancy narratives because yeah. of that sharing. I mean, I think what's so beautiful to me is that um, she is the picture of what it can look like to be entirely given over to God. Mm. And Christ becomes present in that kind of giftedness. Now, it shows up uniquely in each each woman's life. 
and that's what's so beautiful. But you can be certain if a, if a woman is all in, that she will be powerful, strong. That that virtuous woman that we read about in Proverbs 30, that, um, that you know, it's interesting to me because I, I think there's a propensity in a, in a thought that says like women need to somehow be seen and not heard, which is hilarious. <laughs> Because uh, that couldn't be further from the, Your experience the truth. <laughs> uh, but you know what I like to say is that if I saw that my wife is gifted in an area area that that maybe I wasn't, and it's been <coughs> traditionally seen as maybe a, a man's mm-hmm. job. Let's talk about my wife's exceptional at construction, at building things like power mm-hmm. tools. You name it. I don't. I don't want to talk about power tools. I don't care. I'd rather hire someone or just let my wife do it. All right. If she tells me to lift something and bring it up, I will. She wants to go buy a saw, she can buy a saw. But I'm not threatened by her giftedness. Mm-hmm. I want to empower her. If that's where she's gifted, then I want her to thrive there. And she is exceptionally good at that. Uh, we, we, uh, she's like laid all the floors in our house. She's redone the kitchen. I mean, she's a machine. She's like, <laughs> she's like unbelievable. But I, I want to write books and write songs and, uh-huh. and read and talk about Jesus. And, and she does all that stuff too. And she's very organized. So she's better at all of it. Basically, Linda is better at everything than me. But for me as a man, there's not, I'm not threatened by her gifts. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm there. My role is to empower her to be the saint that she's called to be. And and Mary is a strong connection in that, but her femininity isn't passive and right. quiet. Right. It's it's powerful, it's strong. It's kind of sometimes mama bear. It's Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing to me. I know this year I, I thought more about you know, just her praying in the upper room we're told in Acts yeah. for Pentecost. It's a time of fear, everybody's afraid and yep. that she's there. She's not hiding you know she's out right. there yeah and encouraging the brethren i'm sure so yeah i'm glad she's uh cheering us on so i need, <laughs> I need all the help i can get <laughs> well thank you so much chris for talking with us Thanks, it's Father. been great and uh we'll keep following you and hearing what you're doing in the future thank you <laughs>